Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Gabrielle Lord has written 15 books and a 12-volume thriller series. She started writing seriously at the age of 30 and resigned from her position as employment officer in the public service after her third book, Fortress, which was picked up internationally and made into a feature film starring Rachel Ward. Her fifth novel, Whipping Boy, was made into a telemovie starring Sigrid Thornton. Her latest book is Shattered, the fourth book in her popular Gemma Lincoln series, and is preceded by Spiking the Girl, Baby Did a Bad Thing and Feeding the Demons. Her book, Dirty Weekend, was the much-anticipated third book about chief forensic scientist Jack McCain, which followed Lethal Factor and Death Delights. She is referred to as Australia's first lady of crime and writes about crime in and around Sydney's eastern suburbs. Gabrielle writes thrillers and crime fiction focusing as much on the characters' personality, lives and flaws, as well as the forensics of the crime itself. She delves into the physical, the psychological and the forensic with an intimate knowledge and eye for detail. Gabrielle lives in Sydney. Thanks for joining us today, Gabrielle. My pleasure. So how and when did you start writing? Tell us about that. I had always written stories from when I was quite young. Um, I remember starting to write a, what I thought was a radio serial because I was raised in the days of the great radio serials <laughs> when I was about nine, much to my mother's horror, um, because she thought it was rather vulgar, and I think it probably was. <laughs> um, and then I'd always, re- I'd always enjoyed writing. It was the only place that I had a bit of freedom at school. Um, it wasn't prescribed. You know, you could write about different things, but even a, even a set topic gave you a certain amount of freedom. Mm. So I always enjoyed writing. And then I had a sort of an epiphany when I was about 22 and, and realised that I would be a writer when I was 30. Right. And so, yeah, I picked up a Gertrude Stein um, biography and read one sentence that said, I decided when I was 30 I'd write. And I thought, yes, so will I. That's what I'll do. Wow. Yeah, it was a, like a self-hypnosis or something. <laughs> and um, so I, I had at that stage I had written a, about 10,000 words of a novel that was going nowhere. And I realised I was just too young. I didn't know anything about life. I didn't know much except being a young mum in the country. So uh, when I was 30, I started writing seriously. So you really did wait till you were 30 and then I did. On my 30th birthday, I marched up to the um, newsagent and bought a whole new block of paper and lots of new pens and I started to write a novel. Fantastic. Uh, and then I wrote another one, and neither of them were very good, but I learned my craft. I learned the beginning of my craft on, on those two works. So private investigator Gemma Lincoln is a character who features in quite a few of your books. How did you come up with that character? What was the inspiration for that? Well, the inspiration of the first Gemma Lincoln book, which I didn't realise was the first in a series when I wrote it, obviously, um, mm. is a, from a book called Feeding the Demons, and that 
that was inspired by a crime scene photograph. I um, had a close association with a crime scene examiner for many years. And um, in this photograph, it showed the effigy of a, of a female and male figure built out of clothes. And what this offender used to do was break into the houses of women who lived alone and he'd go through their clothing and he would make these strange figures out of clothes which he'd lay on the floor and then he'd stab and masturbate. Mm. Yes, so I remember looking at that thinking, my God, fancy waking up and finding that on your floor. Mm. And that was the beginning of of Feeding the Demons, the novel. But then you have to think, well, who was the person who woke up and that's when I started the beginning of creating Gemma Lincoln. Uh, a woman wakes up and finds that on her floor. Who is she? And so on. Why has she got a video camera? How come? Because when I wrote that, people, you know, video cameras weren't all that widespread. And I thought, well, she's a PI. That's why she's got one, because it's part of her work. Mm. And that's really where the character sprang from. And have you enjoyed shaping that character and letting her develop over time? Well, yes, it's, uh, I mean, it's part of the business is to, you know, grow the character, especially over a series, which means she can't start off terribly well-developed, uh, I mean, emotionally. And she's got to start for, with a fairly... with a lot of character defects that need addressing over the series, I guess. <laughs> mm. So um, that's that's always been... Uh, my, my plan is to grow her up over the... I think we've had four books now. And why the interest in crime fiction in the first place? Well, I didn't really have an interest in crime fiction. It's a funny thing. Um, my first six books are standalones, and although they feature crimes, they, they're more about family relationships, which is my real interest. Um, I often say the uh, the family is the original crime scene. This is where <laughs> so much is laid down in the behaviour of people. Um, so I've always been very interested in family relationships and their effects on children mm. and how that plays out. And I think if you've read Feeding the Demons or anyone who's read Feeding the Demons know that Gemma has, is the daughter of a murdered mother and her father spent many years in prison. And uh, part of the story of Feeding the Demons is Gemma's attempt to clear her father's name. So um, that's really my main interest. How, how do children live under those circumstances, how did they grow up? Mm. And what kind of research have you done on on exactly that, family relationships, or is it something that just, you, you know, is ex- experience that you gather over time or insights and perspectives that you gather over time? Well, everybody grows up in a family, so we all have a family uh, to access, to look mm. very closely into, um, to have a, a look at the relationship that existed between the parents before before you, before you or I are born and how that might have impacted on the arrival of a first child. Um, then the first child has to take its place you know, within the, uh, the, the mother-father um, diptych. And then uh, as the second baby comes along, that baby's then got to make room in a place that's already fairly crowded because there are three people having a relationship by the time the second baby's born. Mm. So all these things uh, um, impact. And if the parents are emotionally immature, which most human beings are, mm-hmm. um, especially when we're that young having babies, um, it, it creates all sorts of interesting challenges for later life. So I, I look at my own family. I look at the way I was raised. I look at the way I raised my own daughter and the ignorance that I brought to that and the wisdom that I've uh, 
developed over the years and, uh, you know, and slowly, slowly it becomes more apparent. Mm. And what kind of research do you do for the actual crimes in your book? Because obviously they need to be detailed and credible. Yes. Uh, well, of course, I do a tremendous amount of reading in that area. Um, as I said, I had this very close association with a senior detective crime scene examiner with the New South Wales Police for many years. And uh, he was a wonderful uh, reference and taught me all I needed to know about bloodstain interpretation and uh, <laughs> uh, all sorts of things like that. I've, I've spent time in laboratories watching uh, the DNA profilers at work um, I spent a lot of time in uh, in, in uh, laboratories talking to scientists, doctors, pathologists, detectives, spooks, um, weapons inspectors. Whatever it takes, I find I, whatever it takes for the book I'm writing, I go and find out about it. What's been your most interesting research project or place that you visited that's made you go wow? Uh, look, it's very hard to say to pick one, um, mm. I mean, all those worlds are very interesting. To, to the people who live in them, they're just their, their work-a-day world, obviously. But mm. when you arrive and you visit, and uh, I found, I really find science very interesting and also very, very beautiful. Um, you know, being able to, to tell which side a window was broken on can be absolutely essential to an investigation. You know, is it a is it a break and enter from the outside or has someone broken the window on the inside to make it look like a break and enter? Now, science can show you, the examination of the shattering of glass can show you exactly that question, can answer mm. that question. Mm. And it's a, and to, to see it, it's beautiful. It's really exquisite. Uh, the rainbow shattering in glasses uh, is lovely in glass. Very, mm. very, very beautiful. So science is very beautiful and interesting. Have you ever thought of um, writing a, a different type of book, maybe one that's a bit more scientific, in fact? Um, no, because there are scientists who are far more qualified to do that than, than I. And, mm. uh, and I think there are people who are more interested in, in true crime who, who do that sort of work. Um, that's not an area that I'm terribly drawn to, I guess. Sure. You've written 15 books. Do you have a favourite? <laughs> uh, do I have a favourite? Look, I actually like The Sharp End very much, which is my um, uh, police dog handler book. Uh -huh. Because uh, going down and researching the, the police dogs was just wonderful. You know, you mm. were asking me before something that stood out. Well, that certainly was a fantastic day when I went down and watched the police dogs going through their um, paces. Wonderfully, uh, wonderfully brilliant, intelligent animals that can go from total ferocity to total docility, you know, on a command. And that's mm. a big ask in a dog, you know, how excited they get. Mm, mm. So uh, that was wonderful to watch that and to realise that the dog is part of the family. Mm. And I said to the sergeant, um, I'll bet you here at home that, you know, either that bitch goes or I go. And he said, oh, yeah, and she knows which bitch goes too. <laughs> <laughs> For somebody who hasn't read one of your books yet but is listening to their podcast, would you have a suggestion on where they should enter the Gabrielle Lord world first? Um, look, probably with either the first Gemma, which is Feeding the Demons, or the first Jack McCain, which is my other mm. series character, the forensic examiner, who's the next New South Wales police now scientist with the AFP, and he was based on someone I know. Mm -hmm. um, probably uh, Death Delights, which is the first of the Jack McCain series. 
And Death Delights won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Australian Crime Fiction Novel in 2002. And as you say, it's about Jack McCain. Tell us why you decided to write about Jack. Well, books come to me in different ways. And sometimes they come to me in the form of a, I mean, if I say vision, it sounds a bit grandiose, but it's like a very powerful overriding mental image. And I was listening to some music, uh, Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead, actually, and this man just appeared in my mind, um, in my studio, fully formed, um, haunted by something terrible that had happened, something he'd failed to stop happening when he was a young boy. And I said, who are you? And that's where Jack McCain came from. Wow. Uh, yeah, so... That's how he arose. You know, I mean, uh, Feeding the Demons came from the photograph. Jack came from Rachmaninoff. So they, they, come from, they come from everywhere, these people. So just take us back to when you were 30, you went, you know, and bought your stationery and your pens and stuff like that and started writing the novel. The novel you started writing then, did that become a book in the end? Or? No, no, it never did. It never did, Valerie. It, um, the first two didn't make it to publication and... Uh, that's probably just as well. But what I did was I just sat down and I started writing. I knew I knew that I had to have a body of work. At that stage, I was working full time, so I was getting up at half past four in the morning. Oh my and god! I was working for a couple of hours, um, and then I'd get my daughter and myself off to work and school, respectively. And then I'd um, come home, cook a meal, we'd eat, and uh, she'd allegedly do homework, <laughs> and I would do another hour or so. And then I'd go to bed. And that's how I lived for a year or two mm. until I had a, uh, a novel. Um, all weekends, of course, were given over to this. And, you know, it means I missed out and she missed out on a lot too, actually, come to think of it. What kept you going? Yeah, well, uh, the desire to finish the work. You know, right. the desire to um, have my say, I guess. And once you had done that, did you? how did you hone it? How did you know if it was good? How did you get feedback on it? Well, I didn't really. It's very hard to know. I mean, I'd know now, you mm. know, now that, well, gosh, um, you know, I've, I've just finished the, the 11th book of a 12-volume crime series that I'm writing. So I've now written 15, 25, 26 books. Mm. I now know how to shape and craft a book. But with the first one, one doesn't, you know, one doesn't. One learns on the job in a way. Um, so I didn't know what it was like and I got feedback from readers. Some people liked bits of it, some people didn't like that, this, that and the other. Um, I mean, you have to learn to uh, listen to readers and, and you have to learn that writing is all about rewriting and rewriting mm. and rewriting and nobody really wants to know that bit. So what happened when you finally got your first book contract? How did that all come about? Well, that all came about because I'd won a New Writers Fellowship in 1977, I think it was, and that gave me a year off work with something sim an allowance, a fellowship similar to the pathetic amount I was earning in the public service. <laughs> but at least it was enough for me and Maddle to, to live on. Mm. And... Um, I'd written these two books and I'd really, you know, shaped up the, the second one that I thought was going quite well, but it wasn't. And I had three weeks left um, when the publisher wrote to all of the people who'd won those uh, fellowships and asked to see anything that came out of it. And, and I showed him mine and no, he didn't like it. Mm. And I had three weeks left and that's when I wrote Fortress. 
and it was an, it came from an idea that had been cooking for a long time. And I wrote Fortress in three weeks of red-hot writing. I've never written like that before. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's only a little book. It's probably only 65, maybe 70,000 words max, maybe 60. Um, and that's largely how what you got. You know, it, I didn't do the only amount of rewriting I did. I didn't do any rewriting on that one. Actually, I, I put in an extra five thousand words for the American market because they didn't. They want to know more about what happens at an Australian rodeo. All right. So you know the ladies with the tea urns and the pumpkin scones and that sort of thing. So mm. um, all I did was add an extra three, four, five thousand words, and that was um, accepted like that. Sure. So that was enormous good fortune. So tell us about your typical writing day. And you, you just mentioned actually as well that you've written the 11th book in a 12-volume series. Tell us about yeah. that as well. Well, that's uh, with Scholastic Publishing. It's a, it's a young adult um, crime thriller that um, is uh, going to start being published next year. It comes out monthly and it follows the fortunes of a fugitive boy who's on the run for crimes he didn't commit. He's 15. Um, he's trying to find out what happened to his father and also he's trying to discover the truth about something called the Ormond Singularity. His name is Ormond, Carl Ormond, Cal Ormond. And he um, has this huge quest to go on for the 12 books, mm. the 12 months. Uh, he's got to stay ahead of the law. He's got to stay ahead of not one but two criminal gangs who are out to not just stop him, but also take what information he has and find the secret that he's after. So it's thrills and spills, very fast moving. Um, it's got a web component because Cal has a blog mm. and readers will be able to connect with him via the website. Um, it's a wonderful uh, romp, I must say, and it's been a ball writing it, although a huge challenge because it's a massive work, as you can imagine. Do you have the story for 12 volumes in your head when you start out or do you treat each one separately? Well, I I had already written um, about a, uh, a 30,000-word outline of the story arc. Mm. Then you can't just do you know a great big book and chop it into 12 pieces mm-hmm. like bits of sausage. Each book has to be crafted and shaped the tension's got to build, there's got to be payoffs, um, there's got to be a satisfaction point where Cal grasps something enormously important or breaks through to a new clue on the whatever the Ormond singularity is, why it's so dangerous to him. Mm. Um, and then it's all got to go to hell then for the cascade in the last little section into the cliffhanging ending which will have the readers panting, you see, for the <laughs> next month's instalment. So of each course. one is a separate complete book and adventure mm. but it also has this component of god what's how's he going to get out of that situation so uh you know i knew the story and then i had to break down each book and there was about a treat like writing a movie treatment really mm. a five-page treatment on each book and then from that i would then start storylining and then start writing and obviously you write for adults and, and young adults. Is it hard to make the switch? Do you have to sort of get into a different mindset to do that? I don't make much of a difference in my mind. I just have to remember um, 
Cal's a bit different because he's acting like an adult. I mean, he is free and independent. But mm. normally with my earlier YA, A Monkey Undercover, I had to remember that children are totally dependent, that they can't get to places um, as easily as adults, that they don't have money, mm. um, that it's harder for them to um, achieve the things that the book needs for them to achieve. But apart from that, I don't make any concessions. Um, I don't, I don't um, you know, the problems facing kids are similar to the problems facing adults. So the parameters are more what your characters can or cannot do to move the story forward as opposed to... Well, yes, and also, yes, um, um, I have a, a, a... The language I don't worry too much about because I've got a marvellous editor who rephrases things if, if I've made a, you know, a too complicated kind of, you know, sub-dependent clause or something, <laughs> she'll whack that into shape. And so, yes, what about your typical writing day? Can you describe to us what goes on these days? The typical writing day, um, it depends what stage I'm at. When I'm out researching, I'm out researching. That means I'm, you know, chasing around. I mean, last year I went to Ireland because the end of Conspiracy 365, which is this big um, 12-volume thing, it Mm. takes place in Ireland um, because it has to take place, uh, finish off in Ireland. That's where the huge secret lies, ticking Mm -hmm. away as it has for the last four, four centuries or so. And um, so I'll be travelling in Ireland, driving people mad with funny questions, <laughs> or I'll be, um, you know, talking to scientists, or I'll be interviewing cops and people like that. Um, when I'm working, um, it depends what stage I'm at. If I'm at um, first draft, I try and push the story out as quickly and energetically as I can. So the first draft... Um, I'd be, you know, hard at it, and I'd do a maximum of a thousand words a day. I'm oh, sorry, mm. a minimum of a thousand words a day. Mm-hmm. I can't leave the house until I've done my thousand words. Uh, sometimes I do three, but um, that's my dog. That's what I have to do. It's all about discipline, isn't it? It's all about discipline. Oh well, and also wanting to get the job done. You know, well, if, yes. you want to get it, if you want to get it done, you've got to do it, sort of thing. Now, um, I'm still, you know, fascinated by this whole thing about I'm going to t- I'm turn 30 and I'm going to be a writer. Uh, you, you obviously persisted for a while, you know, on your own without a lot of feedback initially. Did you always think you were going to make it? I just felt that I was going to be a writer and that if I was going to be a writer, I'd better start writing. Um, so I was constantly writing. I didn't really think too much about not uh, pulling it off. I had very little doubt that I would be successful. In fact, when I wrote Fortress, I had the same sort of feeling about it as you do. I don't know if you're a pool player, but there's a particular <laughs> moment of bliss where you line up the the cue and the, and the ball and the ball that you want to sink. And, you know, it might be an odd angle, but you just know the minute the, the cues hit the white ball, you know you're going to pocket that ball. You just know even before it's happened. And I had that feeling about Fortress. I just knew it was a winner, and I didn't quite know why. Probably because it was simple, straightforward, fast-moving, original. You know, no one had written anything like it before. Um, So the the long answer is uh, I, I just sort of knew that it was going to work. That's a great description. Do you feel that moment of bliss on each of your stories? No, you I've know? never had that complete feeling of um, this is, I'm definitely pocketing this ball, you know, with the others. I've Look, I've got to the stage now after, well, what did I say, 26 books and, 
you know, multiply that by tens because, you know, you just, so so often the drafts are so different that they're almost different books anyway. Um, I really know what I'm doing now as far as setting up and structuring a book. I know mm. what's going to work. I know what's not going to work. So I've roughly got the, the, the big moves sorted. That's not a problem. But as far as that sense of confidence, no, I've only really ever had that shining sense once. The others, I know they're I know they're okay, and I know they're probably going to be acceptable, but that's a different feeling. But I suppose when you get that experience, you just know you're going to pocket the ball. Yes, <laughs> and that's, that's the it, one. you know. So, and finally, what's the what's your advice for aspiring writers? Look, Bryce Courtney talks about bum glue as being the most necessary quality for a young writer. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he's right. It just means staying there at your desk and. Um, uh, removing all romantic nonsense about muses and inspirations and stuff like that. Mm. Get your idea, develop it, ask questions of the character or the situation until you're starting to storyline a story. A story has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. Mm. And you can't really do much until you kind of are in control of that, until you know what you've got. And you only find that by writing it. You know, people say, you know, start off adventurously and write. Of course, of course you do. But eventually you have to stop and say, well, this is where it's going to end. And now I'm going to start writing the book. Um, I mean, there's always a time when you don't know what's going to happen at the end. Mm. And the writing of it is actually what makes the end happening or the worrying at it, like a dog at a bone, Mm. um, until you do work out what's going to happen at the end. People often ask me, do I know what's going to happen at the end? And and it's a funny question because, of, of course, I have to. Otherwise, I couldn't have written it. But there yes. was a time when I didn't either. Yes. You know, when it was just, you know, imagine waking up and finding this on your floor. That's that's the beginning. Yes. So what you're saying is just let it keep writing and let it come out. Yeah, let it come out. And, um, I mean, with the sort of genre stuff, like a, a crime thriller, well, obviously – you could pretty much block in the last chapter, Gemma gets her man. Now, (laughs) how she's going to do that, of course, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But she's going to get that guy. I mean, the setup is that someone stabbed the clothes in her place and she's going to get whoever it was because he's also a killer. So you sort of know that that will be roughly the end. But how that's going to come about, a writer has no idea until you start setting up the stages. And when that finally does come about, what's that feeling like when you just when you when it all crystallizes the it's ending? It's very wonderful because I always go I don't know if this is standard for other writers, but I always go through a stage about three quarters of the way through a book, around about the first draft stage, roughly. Um and it's like the uh you know, that that transition period in labour where you the woman <laughs> becomes extremely truculent and bad natured and uh uh, you know, it's when you're at the end of the niceness. All the niceness is gone, um, and I see, and I'm walking around thinking, how on earth do I get myself into this mess? This book is hopeless. It's never going to work. I've got these six storylines going nowhere. That how am I, how on earth? Why did I ever think this was a good idea? I'm starting a new book immediately. Um, my publisher always thinks that's funny that I would be thinking of starting a new book because that'd be easier. But it, it feels easy because it's cleaner. You know, I'm not in the mess. Mm. Um, and then I know, I recognise now, come on, you always get to this stage, you just have to walk it out or just let it go, go for a swim, go for a walk, go and have a coffee, talk to the cat, do some gardening. And over about three days, sure enough, hey, yes, he can do that, he'll meet them, they'll meet them, that'll go there, this'll go there, and then whack, off off we go. 
and I'm, I'm jumping up and down and wrapping it up. Perfect. Must be a great feeling. <laughs> it's a great feeling. <laughs> okay, and on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Gabrielle. My pleasure, Valerie. Thank you. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.